This is Guns and Butter. We are in a situation where both China and Russia and virtually every country on the planet endorses the COVID-19 narrative. And at the same time, we have both alliances with these two superpowers, but we have also, <laughs> we also have, as far as the United States and NATO is concerned, there are, of course, strategies to destabilize them as nation states. That, in a nutshell, that's really what's going on, and it's very complicated. I'm Bonnie Faulkner. Today on Guns and Butter, Michelle Chosodovsky. Today's show, The Pandemic's Global Impact. Michelle Chosodovsky is an economist and the founder, director, and editor of the Center for Research on Globalization, based in Montreal, Quebec. He is the author of 11 books, including The Globalization of Poverty and the New World Order, War and Globalization, The Truth Behind September 11th, America's War on Terrorism, and The Globalization of War, America's Long War Against Humanity. Today we get an update on the evolving political situation in Quebec and in Canada generally, an analysis of tests and databases of PCR positive cases, the dire economic and social consequences of the global crisis, and discuss the geopolitical ramifications with a particular emphasis on China. Michel Josadovsky, welcome. Well, delighted to be on the program. Global Research is headquartered in Montreal, Quebec, one of Canada's eastern provinces. Can you bring us up to date with what is happening presently in Quebec, both politically and economically? How do you view the evolving situation? Well, to put this into context, since the emergence of the so-called Omicron variant, which was on the 26th of November of last year, sweeping measures have been taken. And this has affected us certainly in Montreal, but it's something which is happening in many countries. Uh, there are restrictions which are now being applied uh, with a view to, of course, protecting people against this deadly variant, uh, which was the day after Thanksgiving, 26th of November. Now, it's interesting to note that within a two-day period, the World Health Organization, as well as medical professionals from South Africa, confirmed that this is not any different from previous variants which are going all over the place, and uh, they in fact use the term mild. Uh, in other words, the Omicron variant is of no danger, and it's certainly not more dangerous than previous variants. But nonetheless, across Canada, but specifically in uh, Quebec, very stringent measures have been applied which don't really have any kind of scientific foundation whatsoever. 
people who are unvaccinated are excluded from shopping malls. They're not allowed to go to what we have here in Quebec as a liquor board where you buy booze, okay? You're not allowed to go in there uh, and you are restricted and you're not allowed to go to restaurants, to bars, and so on and so forth. And there's a curfew. There's a generalized curfew, um, which starts at, at uh, I think it's at 9.30 at night. Now, in turn, there is a campaign against the non-vaccinated um, in the labor market, and this is happening this is happening in a number of countries. In other words, medical professionals have to be vaccinated. Pilots have to be vaccinated. Passengers who go on board planes have to be vaccinated. Um, there's a big debate on the issue of fundamental human rights um, on the grounds that people who are unvaccinated have the right, they have the right to inform consent, and they also have the right to decide whether they want to be vaccinated or not. Um, the provinces have instigated the vaccine passport. I understand the U.S. Supreme Court has doubts on this vaccine passport. So that is the situation in which we are. And I think to address these policies, which are based on nonsensical science. I, I can say that quite categorically. Not only are they based on scientific statements which are simply refuted by official sources, uh, but they don't take into account the rights of citizens to decide on how they want to organize their lives. They've closed down schools, they closed down places of worship, uh, they closed down sport events, all of which constitute a derogation of fundamental rights. They've destabilized civil society. They prevent people from gathering and having family reunions, for instance. Now, at Christmas, we were closed down. We weren't allowed to have friends and family come to our house. And so the question we have to ask ourselves, is there any science behind all these measures? And the answer to that is categorically no. There is no science. And those measures are taken strictly on political grounds. Uh, I should mention that they have a devastating economic and social impact because when you close down restaurants and bars and so on, particularly, you know, particularly at Christmas and New Year, you trigger bankruptcies. Uh, if you don't allow people to travel on buses and on airlines, you trigger the bankruptcy of the airlines and the, and the, and the bus companies. And, of course, this is something which has been ongoing for quite a number of months. Well, certainly since March 11 of 2020, we are in that situation of lockdown, either partial lockdown or full lockdown, as occurred uh, in, in mid-March of, uh, of 2020.
when on orders, uh, or at least on guidelines, which were transmitted to 193 member states of the United Nations, uh, economic activity literally at the level of the entire planet closed down. The governments were instructed to close down their economy with a view to saving lives. And, of course, that meant confining the labor force. And those measures uh, are devastating because they destabilize economic activity. They create mass unemployment, poverty, despair, and in some cases, famines. The FAO has recorded famines in at least 25 countries. You say that there's a curfew presently in Montreal? Well, there is a curfew. Uh, one doesn't really understand the, the nature of this curfew, why, uh, but it's there. The official reason is to prevent the, you know, it's to prevent the spread of the epidemic or the pandemic. Uh, and uh, there's absolutely no evidence that this is a, an effective way of, uh, you know, of preventing people from getting infected. Uh, the fact that they can't go out at night, that they can't go to bars and restaurants, um, but in fact, they can't even go outside their front yard, okay? In other words, I've, I've experienced this kind of curfew when I was living in Chile under the Pinochet regime. Uh, but uh, the Pinochet regime was much more generous because uh, the curfew was at 11 and uh, people were allowed to go out to go to bars, restaurants, and so on and so forth. And at quarter to 11, they all rushed home. We can't go out at night and, and we, can't, we can't socialize. We can't go to restaurants. In other words, we are in a situation where, uh, and this applies, incidentally, the curfew applies to everybody. It applies to the vaccinated and the non-vaccinated. But at the same time, what they're doing is they're creating, they're creating divisions um, between the vaccinated and the non-vaccinated. It's gone to the extent that the Prime Minister of Canada... Justin Trudeau uh, has accused the non-vaccinated of being extremists or misogynists, which is somewhat out of context, uh, calling them misogynists and extremists and conspiracy theorists and so on and so forth because they took the decision not to get vaccinated the new craze presently seems to be testing. I've seen videos of crowds of people pushing and shoving to receive free at-home test kits. Where does the momentum behind all of this testing originate? Well, first of all, there's several dimensions to this. Uh, up until recently, it was the PCR test which was used in locations, whether it's in pharmacies or clinics and so on, the PCR test was used uh, to establish whether a person was COVID positive or negative and so on and so forth. Essentially, the term that I use uh, would be confirmed COVID-19 case. 
and worldwide uh, we are up to 260 million so-called COVID confirmed cases. And uh, I can say that the PCR test is totally unreliable and the PCR test on the 1st of January of this year has been withdrawn by the CDC. Uh, I'm not clear as to whether, whether the PCR will continue to be used. I suspect it is being used, but it no longer has the endorsement of the CDC. And the reason which is provided is that the PCR test cannot effectively distinguish between COVID-19 on the one hand and seasonal influenza on the other. And uh, the other dimension concerning the validity of these, of these tests is that last year, in fact, almost one year ago, on the 20th of January, 2021, the World Health Organization stated quite emphatically that the test was invalid. And what uh, essentially what they say uh, is if you apply this test at an enlargement threshold of 35 cycles and above, that test is invalid and you have to do it over again. Now, those were the instructions which were provided by the WHO right at the beginning. In other words, they gave them the specifications for the so-called detection of the virus. In fact, you can't detect the virus with, with that kind of, of test. What you actually detect are genetic sequences, and you can't uh, in fact, even, even if you do have a COVID-positive case, it could be seasonal influenza, it could be a corona uh, common cold, or it could be something else. And this is absolutely, it's well established. But then on top of that, the World Health Organization said, if you proceeded with 35 cycles uh, and above threshold enlargement concept, uh, the test is invalid. And I can say with all certainty, based on the CDC's recent decision to uh, discontinue the PCR test and the WHO's advisory, that this test is totally invalid and that all the figures generated which are used to justify far-reaching policy mandates simply are invalid. There's no such thing as a confirmed uh, COVID case. There is such a thing as a PCR positive, but a PCR positive does not signify uh, a confirmed COVID positive case. And this, I think, is something which is recognized by scientists 
But nonetheless, the governments are using the PCR test to justify all the decisions that they're taking, whether it's confinement of the labor force, closing down of schools and universities. And I can say there's no such thing as a confirmed, a confirmed COVID-19 case. I'm speaking with economist and director of the Center for Research on Globalization, Michel Chosadovsky. Today's show, The Pandemic's Global Impact. I'm Bonnie Faulkner. This is Guns and Butter. Now, this leads into the, the, the substance of your question. Uh, in recent months, a new form of testing has emerged which are the antigen tests. And these are tests which, uh, which you can do at home. So what they're doing is they're selling kits. And particularly since the, the Omicron variant has emerged, uh, people are getting very scared and they're, they're buying these kits. And you can buy the kits. You've got about 10 to 12 tests in one box. And then you can do it at home and you can test yourself, and then you can communicate with authorities. There are various mechanisms of, uh, of coordination between the, between the individual and the family and the authorities with regard to the tabulation of the data. But what I think is important to point out is the following, and I'll, I'll focus on the Canadian context. We are a country of 38 approximately million people. And what happens? In November, the government of Canada, the federal government, had ordered 94 million antigen tests, which can be then uh, used at home and so on and so forth. And about a week or two ago, it came up with another decision to buy 140 million antigen home tests at a cost of 1.7 billion Canadian dollars. And what this means is that Canada today, with 38 million people, will have something of the order of 140 plus 94. So it's something of the order of 234 million home antigen tests, which means that literally what they've done is they flooded the market with with test kits. Uh, You know, people go to the pharmacy and they buy several boxes. They have 30 tests. And people are now in the process of testing, 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 rather than going to get tested uh, at a pharmacy or at at a clinic uh, with the PCR test. And I should say the PCR test is more expensive. But what has happened now is that the federal government is transferring these, uh, these antigen tests to the provinces free of charge, so it's the federal government which actually pays $1.7 billion, that's a lot of money, 
for these antigen tests, and then the provinces can distribute them in different ways, and in many cases they're sold. Now, um, I have not followed what's happening in other countries, but I'm saying that if the antigen tests, which you can apply in your home, that about 230 million of these tests in Canada, in other countries we may have a similar pattern. We're dealing in billions and billions and billions and billions of, of home tests, which inevitably is going, which are, oh, and that's another thing. I mentioned earlier, the, the PCR test, from my standpoint, corroborated by official statements, official statistics, is invalid. It's totally invalid. And the CDC acknowledges it and says it could be seasonal influenza, it could be something else. The WHO acknowledges it as well. So that the data bank emerging from, from the PCR test, which is used to justify all these decisions, is invalid. As far as I'm concerned, there is zero confirmed COVID-19 cases. They can never be confirmed. And what is now happening is that the antigen tests are categorized as slightly less effective um, compared to the PCR test. Okay? They say it's about 80% the performance of the PCR test. Again, this is a nonsensical statement because the PCR test is totally invalid. So they're taking a test, uh, and they call the, the PCR test, they call it the gold standard. Okay? Now, they call it the gold standard on the one hand, but in effect, the PCR test is invalid, and these tests are also invalid. And we're getting a complete chaos in the testing process, but in the meantime, the numbers are going fly high, okay? Now, who is it that's claiming that the antigen home test kits are less effective than the PCR test? Who is making that claim? No, you'll find these um, statements on, on the description of the test itself. There are several companies involved in, in, in marketing this, okay? And then on the front cover, they'll say 84% effective uh, in relation to PCR, okay? There's a consensus that these antigen tests are not as good as the PCR test, okay? That's, that's absolutely clear. And if you really want to get a, a more reliable test, you have to go down and get it done at a pharmacy or at a, at a health entity which is uh, involved in, in the delivering the PCR test. And, of course, there's a health professional which will take a swab from your nose and your throat. So what they're saying, essentially, these um, uh, antigen tests are 84%, let's say, uh, reliable in relation to the gold standard, which is a PCR test. Now, the whole thing is, is nonsensical because we have shown unequivocally that the PCR test is invalid. And I'm not saying we, but I'm, I'm saying the CDC and the WHO have, have confirmed it. And anybody who wants to check up on that, they can go and, and, and see what the statement of the CDC is, 
with regard to to the PCR test. Do you know who is manufacturing these test kits? I mean, obviously, they're being manufactured by certain companies. Do we know who owns these companies? Well, my understanding is that uh, the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation and uh, the George Soros Open Society Institute have the intellectual property rights on these on these tests. Now, I, I've seen the report in Forbes magazine to that effect. Uh, but as we know, in our in our global economy, the actual production is is outsourced to companies, which can produce these tests on a very, very, very large scale. And there's only one country in the world that can do that, and that's China. I can't generalize, but I've looked at some of the I've looked at some of the labels on these antigen tests, and uh, they are produced in China. Now, some of them may be produced elsewhere, but the thing is you need a very large uh, productive assembly process to produce several hundred million tests, uh, test kits at short notice. And the Chinese are extremely well organized, and we know that, in fact, a large percentage of the pharmaceutical products that we consume on, on a day-to-day basis come from China. Now, uh, the, the absurdity of this process is the following. Uh, $1.7 billion to buy 140 million test kits, which is then transferred to the provinces, and then the provinces actually sell those or distribute them, but they make some revenue out of it, uh, it, it, it has devastating impacts on the management of, I would say, the federal government's budget. It, it is creating a fiscal crisis of the state uh, because, first of all, $1.7 billion is the money which goes out and it goes to the uh, it goes to financing the purchases of these of, of these test kits and then they're delivered to the provinces now the the federal government is is heavily indebted and i can say that governments around the world are heavily indebted okay the situation in the united states might be somewhat different because of because of the Federal Reserve and so on and so forth. But essentially, that money, $1.7 billion, is pushing up the public debt of Canada. And it is also undermining a process which is the whole basis of, of the Canadian Confederation, uh, is the so-called federal-provincial transfers where you actually send money from the federal government to the provinces to fund uh, necessary social programs such as health and education. Okay? That is entrenched in the Canadian Constitution, and uh, it's part of the federal-provincial transfers 
And instead of doing that, what they're doing now is they're transferring a commodity. Well, they'll say it's all for a good cause, it's, and it's part of the health program that we have, and Health Canada is transferring 140 million antigen test kits to the provinces, and it's all for a good cause. But uh, bear in mind that over the last two years, and particularly in the wake of the March 11, 2020 lockdown, both the federal government as all the provincial governments are in a, in a state of fiscal crisis with heavy debts. Why? Because the closure of, of economic activity, the bankruptcies, the high levels of unemployment, the fact that people then are receiving handouts, safety nets, and so on, and the revenues are simply not coming in. Uh, the airlines are not functioning, they're not paying taxes, and in fact they're receiving bonuses, well, in, in a sense, to uh, incite them to support the government's agenda and the lockdown and so on and so forth. I'm speaking with economist and director of the Center for Research on Globalization, Michel Chosodovsky. Today's show, The Pandemic's Global Impact. I'm Bonnie Faulkner. This is Guns and Butter. How is the pandemic affecting geopolitics? It seems like other countries are on board with the pandemic agenda of lockdowns, etc. Russia and China are involved with the World Economic Forum, aren't they? Yes, I, I must say that question right now is tremendously complex. I, I've been reflecting on it for, for, for months now, but what's happening also that, that they're overlapping alliances. It's not Russia which is necessarily aligned with the World Economic Forum. It's financial interests in Russia which align with the World Economic Forum. And there's opportunism uh, and there's divisions within, within uh, Russian society in that regard. But some, some of the... Uh, very important financial institutions are aligned with the World Economic Forum and Klaus Schwab. And then on the other hand, uh, there are sectors of, of uh, Russian society which are dead against the Economic Forum. And I've noticed again that when the Economic Forum uh, undertook uh, a simulation of cyber attacks, uh, they invited a a whole series of participants from, from Russia as well as from former Soviet republics, but they didn't invite a single participant from China. And conversely, the pharmaceutical industry has very close ties to, uh, to the pharmaceutical industry in China. They work hand in glove. Uh, they, they need China to produce what they're producing. And uh, I can say that uh, at the level of business relations and even at the level of academics, they are very pro-U.S. Uh, but at the same time, China is being threatened. And uh, we are in a situation where both China and Russia and virtually every country on the planet endorses the COVID-19 narrative. And at the same time, we have 
both alliances with these two superpowers, but we have also <laughs> we also have, as far as the United States and NATO is concerned, there are of course strategies to destabilize them as nation states. That, in a nutshell, that's really what's going on, and it's very complicated. I can't really at this stage, without getting into the structure of these alliances and so on, it's it's complex. Yes. Now, uh, what about the banking institutes of China? They're involved with the World Economic Forum as well, right? Well, you know, the thing is, we have to look at the history the history of China in the last, I would say, in the last 40 years, starting in the late, let's say, in the late 70s, coinciding with the death of Mao Zedong. And what happened is that China adopted what was called the open-door policy. Now, the open-door policy actually is a colonial term and this open-door policy consisted in restoring uh, the special economic zones and treaty ports that they had historically from the middle of the 19th century uh, following the Opium Wars up until um, the formation of the People's Republic of China in 1949. So that this, this opening up to the global economy went through several stages. And I can say that as of 2001, the Western banking institutions are firmly entrenched within, uh, within the Chinese uh, financial apparatus. And that happened uh, bilateral agreement signed in September 2001 uh, on China's accession to the WTO, the World Trade Organization. But essentially it provides Western banks access not only to the, to the wholesale market, but to the retail banking market so that they, they, they can go into China and, and they have established offices in China. They have their their subsidiaries on the Shanghai Stock Exchange. Big Pharma have, have subsidiaries throughout China, not only Wuhan. They have links with the pharmaceutical industry and so on and so forth. So that, bear in mind, uh, commodity trade between China and the United States is colossal. It's colossal. And that means that they have business relations. And they have very close business relations. And I can say that as a result of this, of this crisis, those business relations are in jeopardy to some extent. And, and the Chinese have now actually redirected the thrust of their international trade to Western Europe and to other countries. It's the so-called Belt and Road Initiative. Uh, they are still trading with the United States extensively. Uh, it's still a major partner. But at the same time, ironically, uh, China is on the, on the list of enemy nations that are allegedly threatening the security of the United States. Now, that kind of 
of relationship is, is very contradictory because they trade, they have good relations with, uh, with Western countries, and at the same time, at a geopolitical level, there are threats directed against China and Russia, and these threats, they're, they're to be taken seriously. Uh, they're threats of nuclear war. And I, I've looked at all the documents in that regard. Uh, and in fact, uh, both China and Russia have been threatened with nuclear war uh, right from the, from the 1940s. And so uh, we have to look at these contradictory relations. But as far as the, the, the COVID narrative is concerned, the Chinese government is fully supportive and that has, to, that has to do with the fact that the China CDC, the China CDC is headed by, is headed by an individual called George Gaofu. Uh, now, George Gaofu is a buddy of Bill Gates. And he was also invited to the 201 simulation in October of 2019, as we recall, there was a there was a simulation uh, which took place, a scenario, so to speak, and uh, it was called Event 201, and there were representatives from a number of organizations. George Gaofu, actually, he's he's a graduate of Oxford University, and he has. Uh, been in touch with Harvard uh, Medical School, and he was a fellow of the Wellcome Trust. Now, the Wellcome Trust is one of the biggest uh, funds um, in, in Big Pharma. Uh, it's, let's say it, it might be equivalent to the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, but it, it has a different dynamics. But he was for several years fellow of the Wellcome Trust, so that he's part of the, his, his social entourage and professional entourage is essentially Western scholars and officials who are uh, also linked up to the World Economic Forum and so on. And when the, when the, when the so-called pandemic commenced in late 2019, George Gaofu played a central role in, uh, in uh, overseeing the outbreak in Wuhan in early, in, let's say, in early 2020. But he, he, he was in touch consistently with, with the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, with John Hopkins, with, uh, with the Big Pharma, and so on and so forth, and, and also with the Wellcome Trust. So that, that's the background. Uh, I... I, I, I think that he is essentially committed to the COVID narrative. Uh, he has tremendous power because he, because he runs the CDC in China and sets the, the, the agenda within, within China. He's very closely linked up with, uh, with the World Health Organization and, and its Director General, uh, Ted Ross. Well, he is head of the Chinese CDC. Is he then part of the um, Communist Party in China or not? 
<laughs> well, you know, uh, the Communist Party uh, regroups most of the financial capitalists of the People's Republic of China. I, I, I can't answer that question, but uh, membership in the Communist Party, you'll find a lot of of business tycoons and and uh, and financiers and bankers and so on, uh, members of the Communist Party, uh, and I think that we we have to shed this notion that, that China is a is a communist country. It's not. It's not. I, I've been going back and forth to China uh, since I started doing my research on China, which was in the 1980s. And, and China is a full-fledged capitalist country. Um, disparities in income and wealth are, are even greater than they are in Western countries. Um, I, I, I've done a lot of research on this, and I don't want to get into... I'm not sure whether I can get into a discussion on that, but uh, uh, China is a capitalist country. Call it what you want. I, I'm sure that within that party there are still people who believe in, in, in uh, socialism and so on, but the wealth disparities are tremendously large within, within the, the People's Republic of China. And I can tell you that uh, if you look at the labor statistics, you have something of the order of 260 million people, uh, uh, workers, which do not have the right of abode in urban areas. In essence, they are seasonal workers within their own country. So they go back to their, their homes and villages and small towns located in different regions of China. They will come to Shenzhen, which is a manufacturing base close to Hong Kong. They'll go to Shanghai. Uh, they'll, go to, they'll go to various industrial zones. Uh, they're part of the, the industrial uh, workforce, which, which is a cheap labor economy. And the disparities in income and wealth are tremendous within China. Now, so the people who are, who are players in, 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 uh, in China, people of, of status, most probably will be members of the Communist Party. Uh, they hold positions of authority, and, and so on. I'm speaking with economist and director of the Center for Research on Globalization, Michel Chosadovsky. Today's show, The Pandemic's Global Impact. I'm Bonnie Faulkner. This is Guns and Butter. And th- this is not something new. It existed right from the beginning in 1949. <laughs> and and uh, I, I remember the famous quote, uh, I, I'm not passing a judgment, but Mao Zedong said, where do you think all the capitalists are? They're in the Communist Party. He says that. That's a great quote. Well, I have that quote, yes. Well, he used the term, well, it was translated in, into English as the bourgeoisie. Where do you think all the members of the Chinese bourgeoisie are? in the Communist Party. Everybody joined the Communist Party in 1949. And, uh, and then we have a situation where they've essentially, uh, they've essentially restored 
private agriculture. Uh, and I went, well, I did field work in China in the early 80s, and then I went back about, well, it was eight, nine years later, and I went back to the same, to the same locality where I had, I was received at the People's Commune. The People's Commune was abolished in 1983, formally, but it, and well, it was closed down. And then I, I, I was received, and I, I asked the, I asked the, the person who was there, who, who was in charge of what was previously the People's Commune, the, the, the infrastructure was still there, the meeting rooms and everything. And then I said, I said, well, what happened to the People's Commune? And he said, well, the People's Commune now has been transformed into a holding company. <laughs> and then I said, well, who are the members of the holding company? Uh, there were about a thousand families. And he said, the members of the holding company are him, me and him. They were the three guys with, were there at the meeting, okay? In other words, the families took over the, 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 the people's commune with all the lands and everything. And then I said, well, what happened to all the other people, the, the thousand families there? He said, they are, they are uh, agricultural workers. So that is the nature of capitalism in China. Okay. I wrote a book on the restoration of capitalism in China, which was published uh, in, the, in the 1986, and everybody, on, everybody said, you're absolutely crazy, you don't know what you're talking about. China is a capitalist country, okay, with some kind of communist characteristics. Well, they've got this top-down party, but does it have any communist characteristics? The, the, the social structure in China is based on Confucius. It, it, it is, um, it's hierarchy, and everybody, uh, all professionals and business people, want to move up in the hierarchy, and there are various mechanisms. Of course, money is, is, is one, but I've noticed among academics, it's, it's the, the recognition, but it's also conformity to, uh, to an ideology. And it's not necessarily conformity to, to the Communist Party apparatus. Uh, Confucius is very important ideologically because it, it, has a, it, it defines a structure where people have to obey orders from higher up. And this has nothing to do with, with, uh, with socialism. It, it's embedded in, in uh, Confucian ethics, and um, people seek their promotion, and they seek their promotion in, in conforming to certain guidelines. I uh, I certainly noticed that when I when I when I visit uh, Chinese universities or what is called uh, the the Chinese Academy of Social Sciences, I must say that the Chinese intellectuals and Chinese business people are very pro-American and. It's unclear as to how 
uh, how they have shifted their opinion with regard to with regard to this crisis, which has, in many regards, changed their the direction of international trade. But um, I also notice that people in the media are also very, very much influenced by Western values. And, and that is understandable. But then again, we have to understand history. On, on one of my last visits to China, I was, uh, I was invited to uh, the Tsinghua School of Journalism. Tsinghua University in Beijing is an elite university. And what the Chinese don't know is that it's the outgrowth of the U.S. missionary schools uh, at the beginning of the 20th century. I won't get into the details. But then I, I, I'm invited to the School of Journalism there, and uh, people say, well, yes, global research, etc. And I, and I give a lecture. And then I, I discover that the School of Journalism is called the Bloomberg School of Journalism. It's the graduate program, the Bloomberg School of Journalism, which is funded 100% by Wall Street. Okay? Mm. And uh, in fact, uh, there you have uh, an academic program, which is in journalism, and which is in conformity with the uh, concepts which are taught in, 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 in Western universities and which is that of conformity also. So um, some of the, the mainstream media channels in China will uh, reflect those values. Now, if you go into a business school in, 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 in China, many of the business schools were actually set up, some of them were set up uh, in the 1980s, and, and they also had cooperation agreements with, with universities in the United States or universities in, in, uh, in the United Kingdom. Uh, this is uh, standard. And uh, what I'm saying is that, well, to put it bluntly, China is not a communist country by any means. It has certain welfare, social welfare programs, which is in the process of building. It has a real economy which is, which is developing, but it is certainly not a country which is uh, based on socialist ideology. Well, it has the socialist ideology maybe simply as a cover, and that uh, essentially uh, provides legitimacy to, uh, to the creation of, of a social structure which is ultimately marked by very uh, extensive uh, inequalities. That's, that's very clear um, in the, you know, the development of the luxury goods economy in, in China for a very small minority. But that small minority is, is obviously, it might be several million people out of a population of 1.4 billion. Didn't Mao Zedong get rid of Confucianism? Uh, that was the whole basis of the Cultural Revolution. It was to get rid of the Confucian. It's not necessarily to get rid of Confucius, which was a, an intellectual and a, 
and a personality in Chinese history. It was to remove people from the, the ethics of obedience and conformity. And uh, yes, that, that was the basis of the Cultural Revolution. Uh, they wanted to abolish what were called the key schools. Now, the key schools were schools for elites. I don't think I can really get into a discussion of the Cultural Revolution right now, but I was invited to the University of Wuhan on two occasions, and I met the head of the, the School of Economics at Wuhan University. That, the first visit was in 82, and he received me. I went to his house, and <laughs> the irony is that this guy was, was a graduate from Harvard. He did his economics at Harvard University, and he was, he was very patriotic. Uh, I mean, probably was at Harvard in the 40s, okay, as a young, uh, as a young student. And then we started talking about the Cultural Revolution, and he said to me, he, w he went down to the villages, and he said, we talked to people, we had long conversations with the farmers, and he said, I learned a lot from that experience. In, in effect, he responded in a very positive way to the Cultural Revolution, because he said, people people in the cities, and particularly intellectuals, professionals, teachers, which were the, were the product of this Confucius ethics and morality, they looked down on the farmers. Okay? Now, how are you build socialism under those conditions? And so he said that was, that, from his standpoint, that was a very positive experience. And it wasn't necessarily that they closed down the universities and, and then sent people to the rural areas. They would go and they would come back. But there was, there was, a, you know, there was a feeling of, of sharing and solidarity which emerged. Now, there were other people whom I spoke to and they, they, they had exactly the opposite reaction. And maybe those were capitalist rotors. Now... Uh, incidentally, you know what the significance of the Chinese flag is? The, the Chinese flag, red flag, has four little stars and one big one, okay? The four little stars are the peasants, the workers, <laughs> the, the intellectuals, and the patriotic bourgeoisie, okay? Part of that alliance between workers, farmers, intellectuals and, and capitalists. But they assume that these are patriotic capitalists, that they're not colonial capitalists. And then the big star is the Communist Party. Now, th that answers your question about who's in the Communist Party. All these four categories of people are there. Farmers, but I would say that today, small farmers are not in the Communist Party. It's the landowners that are in the Communist Party. Well, not, not many people know it, and, uh, and the thing is, it, 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 it tells you a lot about the composition of that Communist Party. But I would say today, the elites control the Communist Party. It, it, it doesn't have, as it used to have, it had, had some kind of grassroots.
Michel Chosodovsky, thank you very much. My thanks and appreciation, Bonnie. I'm delighted to be on Guns and Butter and to reach out to people in New York and neighboring regions on what I consider to be a very important issue, namely the corona crisis. I've been speaking with Michelle Chosodovsky. Today's show has been The Pandemic's Global Impact. Michelle Chosodovsky is the founder, director, and editor of the Center for Research on Globalization, based in Montreal, Quebec. The Global Research website, globalresearch.ca, publishes news articles, commentary, background research, and analysis. Michel Chosodovsky is the author of 11 books, including The Globalization of Poverty and the New World Order, War and Globalization, The Truth Behind September 11th, and America's Long War Against Humanity. Be sure to read Michel Chosodovsky's ebook, The 2020 to 2022 Worldwide Corona Crisis, Destroying Civil Society, Engineered Economic Depression, Global Coup d'Etat, and The Great Reset, posted at globalresearch.ca. That's globalresearch.ca. Guns and Butter is produced by Bonnie Faulkner, Yaro Mako, and Tony Rango. Visit us at gunsandbutter.org to listen to past programs, comment on shows, or join our email list to receive our newsletter that includes recent shows and updates. Email us at faulkner at gunsandbutter.org. Follow us on Twitter at G&B Radio. Hey, yo, these are some serious times that we live in, G. And our new world order is about to begin. You know what I'm saying? Now the question is, are you ready for the real revolution, which is the evolution of the mind? If you seek, then you shall find that we all come from the divine. You dig what I'm saying? Now if you take heed to the words of wisdom that are written on the walls of life, Look out for the spirit sniper.